Let us pray. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you until with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you go judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, 
whom you delivered over and died, denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The word of the Lord. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we can come together and worship you um, for all Sundays for this great gift of the church. Thank you for the great gift of your word and ask that you um, proclaim yourself to our heart and minds now. Amen. McCavity, McCavity, there's no one like McCavity. This is a regular refrain from a poem by T.S. Eliot. It's surprisingly by T.S. Eliot for me in some ways. Uh, It's called McCavity the Mystery Cat. My son Corin recently got to interact with and memorize that poem. It's a lot of fun. Look it up later, not now, later. Um, and it tells the story of McCavity, a cat, who is a master of crime. Um, we are told in the poem that he has broken every human law. He breaks the law of gravity. A favorite stanza of mine uh, goes, McCavity, McCavity, there's no one like McCavity, for he's a fiend in feline shape, a monster of depravity. You may meet him in a by street, you may see him in the square, but when a crime's discovered, then McCavity's not there. 
And that's the problem of this whole poem. McCavity is obviously the master criminal. Everyone knows he's committed a vast amount of crime, but he's the, va- the bafflement of Scotland Yard because no matter what happens, McCavity is not there. On top of that, he always has an alibi or one or two to spare. So as we turn to our Acts reading today, I want to point something out. seems obvious. Jesus is nothing like McCavity. Now, obviously, that's not... <laughs> Obviously, Jesus isn't a master criminal. He's not a cat. Probably can break the law of gravity, right? That's not the point here. Uh, in the poem, a big part of who McCavity is is just he is never there. When you look where you expect him, um, you'll never find him, especially at the scene of the crime, especially at the moment when everyone says, this had to be him. This is his work and doings. Then certainly you will not find McCavity. And then we come to Acts, and we see in Acts again and again moments or miracles or teachings when we start to think and say, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That looks a lot like Jesus. That reminds me of Jesus. And when we look around, well, the point isn't that he's disappeared or not there. The point is that actually Jesus is right there. Everywhere we look in this book, we're meant to see Jesus is right there. Jesus is at work. Really, The book shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should instead be called the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles. Or if you really love long titles, I guess we could do the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles and the church through the ages. I don't know. You can keep going if you want. So this is what we see uh, in our reading this morning. Jesus is at work. He's the very center of the story. Everything here revolves around his work and who he really is. So as we move forward into the text, that's what we're going to be exploring. And actually, for the first time ever, I'm very proud of myself, I've managed to summarize this in three key points. They even have, like, watch the words here. They all come together really nicely. So as we go forward, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the power of his church. We'll see that Jesus Christ is the proclamation of his church. And then in the end, and overall, Jesus Christ is present in his church. So let's start with how we're reminded in this passage that Jesus Christ is the power of his church. This comes to us very strongly in this really great miracle story that the passage begins with. We see Peter and John are entering the temple for worship, and they encounter this man who has been born lame. He's a physical disability. He's been unable to stand or walk. That, of course, means he's been unable to work for his whole life. Um, And at that time, if you're not able to work because of a disability like this, the best you can do is beg. The best you can do is ask for alms. So this man is laid at the temple gate so that the people can give him money as part of their service to God. They've actually been commanded to take care of those in need. We see some of this in our Leviticus reading today. And so he gives them a very direct opportunity as they're worshiping to do what the Lord says, and they can give him alms. Well, he sees Peter and John coming past him, and he asks them for alms. And he's certainly excited, right? Peter and John look right at him, and they direct him to look at them, right? Look at us. That... That's got the feeling of a really big monetary gift, doesn't it? If you have to look at the person when they're giving it to you. Um, But then Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Don't you hope he's like smiling a little bit as he says that? I still hope he kind of paused ominously for a minute there. I have no silver and gold. Um, Whatever's going through this mind, he's wondering, this, this, uh, the, the guy who's asking for help, he doesn't know what's going on in the moment. But Peter does thankfully continue. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And before this man even fully understands what's happening, Peter takes him by the right hand and stands him up. And it says in the very moment his feet and his ankles were made strong and he begins to walk and leap about. 
I want to stay with this moment a little longer. What happens to this man, it's not a minor thing or like a little miracle. But we can kind of move quickly and not really appreciate it in some ways. So remember, this man was born with this disability. He's never probably stood before in his life. He's never walked. So that means at this point in his life, he's a man, however old that is, he's an adult. But it means that his legs, his muscles would have atrophied. Before this point, probably his legs would have been very small-looking, maybe childlike or even a bit shriveled, um, because they would have never developed properly from there. Beyond that, having never stood or walked before, the bones in his legs were very frail, bones strengthened under stress and work. And then you even get into things like his neural pathways around walking and movement. Those things aren't ready for this. Think of little children when they learn to walk. They scoot around and crawl and then pull themselves up and then start taking steps. All of these things are part of developing everything in their body, their, their muscles, bones, nerves, brains, for what is happening with that movement. This man has never done any of those things before. Everything in his body isn't wired for this. And yet it's just a moment that he goes from lying on the ground to then standing and walking and jumping around. Probably running, it doesn't say it, but I would imagine that. This is a whole body miracle. This is the ability of God to create and recreate, to make whole what was broken. This is God's power really amazingly on display for us all. This is just a wow moment. This is amazing. And everyone around recognizes just how outstanding this is. They come running. They're filled with amazement and wonder. And all this healing power, this is the power of Jesus Christ at work. Yes, Peter and John looked at this man. Yes, Peter speaks to him. But they had no power on their own. Peter even said, I'll give you everything I have. And then he turns to Christ and has to have Christ's power for that. And then as the story continues on, Peter's preaching to these crowds. Notice all the effort he goes through to make sure people don't think this has anything to do with him or John personally. He says in verse 12, Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? This miracle isn't because Peter and John are especially holy or pious. It's not because they're, you know, secretly superheroes of some sort. This is not their doing. And Peter continues on to explain this. In verse 16, he says, It was by the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, that this man was made strong. And then to make sure everyone, the crowds and even us, really understand it, he says that again. It is the faith through Jesus that has made this man healed, that has brought this miraculous healing. This is the power of the church. It's nothing we can say or do or try to be. Our power is Jesus Christ working in and through us. Actually, there's one more fun detail in this healing I want to draw your attention to that, again, highlights the power of Christ in various ways. If we think about the Old Testament, um, we actually see quite a few healings and miraculous miracles and moments. Um, But what's constant through all of them is that the person being used in those moments, like the prophet or the leader, um, they're always calling out to God for help. They're shown praying to God or asking for his work, declaring God's presence, all sorts of things like that. And then the miracle happens. Actually, in this miracle, we see something pretty similar. Peter calls out to Jesus for help in order to have this miracle. That says an awful lot about who Jesus is, and we'll say some more about that as we go. Um, I want to point out one really fun thing. This was, we were in this passage not that long ago in youth group. And one of the youth pointed out here that, well, Peter was calling out to to Jesus, like the Old Testament prophets called out to God. Um, but then he reminded us all of something that we talked about before, and it was nice he remembered it. And it was like, yay, they remember something. Uh, but he said, whenever you're in the Gospels and you see Jesus healing, 
You never see Jesus having to call it to God beforehand. He never has to pray or define it. Jesus can just heal right on the moment, whenever he wants to. He's the only one with all that power. So in this moment, we have a reminder of how great Christ's power is. We have a reminder of him being at work, but of how necessary Jesus is to be here, how much we need him, his authority, his power for this. So that is the truth of the church. Our power is only found in Christ. This is also a really great challenge for us in the church. Are we looking elsewhere for that power? As I was studying this passage in some commentaries, I came across a story. It's almost certainly legendary, non-historical, but it really powerfully used the language of this passage to push this challenge to us. The story involved um, Thomas Aquinas. He was an influential monk and theologian from the Middle Ages. And in the story, he's visiting a pope. It was one of the bad popes, one of the really secular popes. Um, And this pope is counting through this huge pile of gold and silver, and he turns to Thomas and he says, You see, Thomas... The church can no longer say, silver and gold, have I none. He's quoting Peter from this passage. Well, Thomas has to agree with him, but then he adds, neither can the church now say, rise and walk. Now, first, that's a really good burn. If someone said that in youth group, someone would have responded, got him. Uh, But it's not just like clever in his response, is it? You all felt it like I did. Like, that's really real. That really digs to this real truth here. It's not that the church can't have or use money, but when the church looks to money, or anything, really, when the church looks to politics or intellect, people, art, when we look any, to anything for power other than Jesus, we find we have no power at all. We lose our source of power in that. So I hope we are asking ourselves often, if we are pursuing a power other than Christ, if we ask ourselves, are we really finding power in the one who can actually say, rise and walk? So moving back into this passage, after the healing, the people are amazed and they're crowding around, which is, of course, a great opportunity to spread the gospel and proclaim Jesus, which is our second point. Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the church. Now, last week, Christian taught us about the gospel in a lot of ways. One of his points was that the gospel is fulfilled in Christ. This point will be similar to that, but let's just be honest. The proclamation of Jesus is so big, this isn't just a simple little repeat here. Even in Peter's very short sermon here, maybe it's a summary rather than the full message, but even in this message, there is so much to learn and remember about Jesus. There's so much being proclaimed about him, and very specially about who Jesus is. So before diving into that proclamation of Jesus, though, I do want to dwell on that question. Who is Jesus, really? It's not a little question at all. We can't talk about his power about serving him or being saved by him without his identity making sense of all of it. Jesus can't just be some regular guy or even a fairly insightful, uniquely gifted guy. No, if Jesus is actually the answer that we claim he is, that Peter will proclaim in this sermon, then Jesus has to be so much more than any other human. He needs to be human, but he also needs to be God. Um, C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said quite famously, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. I actually remember quite a few conversations or just teachings from skeptics and things online that ultimately boiled down to, Jesus just isn't God. He never said he was God. The church early on didn't say he was God. Everything was made up later on. I remember actually one 
college class in my, um, it was a Christian university, where the professor asked, where in the New Testament does it say that Jesus is God? Now, to be clear, that professor really did believe Jesus was God, but he was taking that question, I have an issue with the way he phrased that question, it was too literal. He was looking for those exact words, Jesus is God. And you can find one or two spots in the New Testament that say it that literally. But there's actually so many others that say it maybe a little less directly, but no less powerfully. So many other places where it's demonstrated who Jesus really is. So it's wrong to claim Jesus never claimed to be God. If we read the Gospels carefully, we actually see he did so in numerous ways. We can't explore all that right now. But we can explore right here what the church right away thought about Jesus. This story takes place within a few months of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This isn't something made up later on. And right away, we see Peter proclaiming really amazing things about who Jesus is. So what does Peter say? Well, he calls Jesus the Holy and Righteous One. That, on its own, sounds pretty cool. It's quite the title. But remember, who really is the Holy One in Israel? It's the God of Israel. Regular people aren't usually just described as the Holy One. That's not a normal thing. Same for the Righteous One. God is the only truly Righteous One. But if that's not enough, Peter goes on. He says, Jesus is the author of life. I love this description Peter's building. It's surprisingly poetic, especially for Peter. Um, But take him seriously here. He says Jesus is the author of life. Well, who actually is the author of life? Who created all things? Who designed the world? Who sustains it by his power? The author of life can only be God. All these things coming together, this is the highest possible way to talk about who Jesus is. Jesus surely is God. And of course, this is why Jesus is the power of his church, why he's the proclamation of his church, because he is God. Peter isn't simply, though, proving that point about Jesus' divinity. We need that. But then he continues, and he actually has so much more. Jesus, Peter begins and ends this sermon sermon, by calling Jesus the servant. That brings to mind for us the servant that the prophet Isaiah proclaimed would come. It's a suffering servant who would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. He would take our iniquity upon himself and heal us by his wounds. So Jesus is God. He's also the humble, suffering servant who dies on our behalf. And on top of that, notice just throughout this sermon that Jesus is described as the one that God always promised would come. He's the answer to everything that has gone on before. He's the one that everyone's been waiting for. The whole story of God and God's people finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And because of all of this, because Jesus is God, because he's a suffering servant who died on our behalf, because he was so long ago foretold by God, the one we've always been waiting for, we can repent We can turn back to God and find our sins blotted out. The proclamation of Jesus is that God has acted in Jesus, who is himself God, to provide a way out of our sins, a way through death, a way of forgiveness, life, joy, and refreshment in him. And that way of life is open to everyone. Peter, as a preacher, is not very seeker-sensitive here, is he? Notice just how quickly and repeatedly he lays the blame for Jesus' death right on this whole crowd They're there and they're receptive, but look at him. He says, but you delivered him, Jesus, over. You denied him. You asked for a murderer instead. You killed him. But then he doesn't say, so get out of here. This isn't for you. Then Peter actually says, you acted in ignorance and you can repent. Even though you are responsible for the death of Jesus, you can still turn to him and find forgiveness 
But Peter doesn't mean that simply for the crowd around him either. He means it even for us. Now really, while these early Jerusalem crowds have a real direct hand, either through action or inaction in the death of Christ, the point has always been that we all have a hand in his death. All of us have sinned. All of us gave reason for his death. All of us would have done the same thing as the crowds. But Jesus loves us. He forgives us. He accepts us as his own anyway. The Apostle Paul said it so beautifully, saying, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not good enough. We are not worthy. We deserve none of it. But God loves us. So Christ died for us. In him, we really do have forgiveness, new life, and unending hope. So Christ is the power and the proclamation of his church. And that stems from the real final ultimate reality that Christ is really present in his church. And admittedly, in our passage today, this big idea, it's already just kind of a given. We're meant to just know what's already happening and see it at work. Luke already set this idea up earlier. So here we just see the outwork and we see the miraculous healing, the vibrant gospel proclamation. But if we take a few steps back from the story, we can see how this all starts. And if we take a few steps back, well, we're at the beginning of the book. We're only in Acts 3. We don't have far to go. But that's a very important place for us to be. In the introduction to this book, Luke lays out kind of this major point, that Christ is present and at work in his church. He does this as he's explaining the connection of Acts to his first book, which was the Gospel of Luke. And he says, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Did you catch it there? It's quick. It's theologically really amazing. Luke says his first book um, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Not all that Jesus did and taught. Nothing close to the first book was about what Jesus did, and now we're going to talk about the church. It's what Jesus began to do and teach, meaning Jesus isn't done yet. He's still at work. That book was only the beginning of what Jesus was doing and teaching, and he's still working and alive and around in his church. Well, then we wonder, but how is he working? Didn't he ascend to heaven? Well, yes, he did, and we're going to say a lot more about this in a few weeks. This is the point of Pentecost, though. It's not that Jesus left and then he's replaced by the Holy Spirit, but that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us so that Jesus is still with us. He's with us all, everywhere, all the time by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because the Holy Spirit came that suddenly the church was able to proclaim Christ with so much power and conviction because it wasn't simply the church, but Christ at work. It's because the Holy Spirit came that the church was able to work signs and wonders. You know, the disciples had done a few miracles with Jesus during his ministry, and there's no talk of them during after the death of Christ until Pentecost. And at that point, they just explode out, and they're done by way more than just the 12 apostles. And throughout the whole book of Acts, every time we find major decisions, major growth in the church, these major moments, it all happens only with reference to the work, the word, or the spirit of Christ. Or even think to um, Pastor Joel was preaching about the conversion of Saul a few weeks ago. Christ shows up bodily, dramatically, and blinds him. Um, the whole amazing point is Christ is really, truly present in his church. And it's not just simply at the time of the first apostles in the early church. The book of Acts isn't telling us a story of only what is long past. This is telling us our family story. This is the church. We are still part of this body. And the King of kings and Lord of lords is even now head of his church. He's with his church always. He's working through his church as we turn to him, as we surrender to him. 
So Christ is our power for ministry. Jesus Christ is the one we proclaim, and we find in him life, peace, love, joy, forgiveness, grace. And we know that he really is truly with us always, even to the very end of time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are truly with us um, always, um, that you work through us, um, work mightily. I ask that you help us to hold fast to you, to turn, to surrender, um, and find in you our proclamation, our power, our very life. Amen.